Hi everyone, Omaya alcoholic. For some reason, I'm nervous today. I don't know why, but uh, doesn't really matter, does it? Um, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm really happy to be here and see you all. Uh, I have a sponsor. She has a sponsor. I know my grand sponsor. I have sponsees. Just trying to ground myself a little bit. Um, I have not, like, well, that's a lie. I have tried to prepare for this, <laughs> and I decided not to. I love drinking. Um, I think drinking is, was, I should say, was fabulous until it wasn't. Because I have this, like, hole, this perceived hole in myself that something is not right. And um, when I drink, that hole gets filled in, in, a, in the perfect way. Until it just doesn't. Um, so I have this spiritual malady, which I, I really identify with. I'm a late bloomer. I didn't start drinking until six years ago. Um, I'm 46, so that means I didn't really start drinking until I was four, drinking alcoholically until I was 40. Um, and when I found it, it was like, oh, I have arrived. Like, that's what I was missing this whole time. <laughs> um, so, a little bit, I'll just stick to the format a little bit about how it was, what happened. Um, there was just one day when I walked into the grocery store and I realized I could buy my own beer and it, like I don't know why it never occurred to me before that but it just it happened that day and that day like was one beer the next day was two beers and then the next thing I know it's like a bottle of wine two bottles of wine three bottles of wine and you know, the curve goes like exponential. And all of a sudden I'm drinking three bottles of wine every day. I'm chucking bottles of wine out of my car because I'm drinking when I'm driving all the time. Um, it's the only thing I think about. I'm hiding it everywhere. And, um, It's a total obsession. And and I love that we just read from the big book because denial is such a huge part of 
what I went through. I mean, I still try to tell myself that I'm not an alcoholic. Like, I mean, at least now I can catch it. But um, I made a lot of things work when I was drinking. And um, I was telling a friend in the program the other day that you know, we have these terms like high bottom, low bottom consequences and all that. And I said, well, you know, I don't really think that I hurt anyone except for myself. So it wasn't really a big deal. And he was like, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess it is. So um, what happened? I got really tired of it. At some point, it just felt like it wasn't the right path to keep drinking. Um, to keep having that obsession was exhausting. And um, last April, I guess a year and a half ago, I called the AA hotline. And <laughs> it was Zoom because we were at COVID. And I went into a meeting and it was a meditation meeting. Oh, God. I was so mad. But that was my first meeting. And the next day I went to another one. And um, I got really excited about it. And I got 30 days. And then I drank on day 30 because that made perfect sense because I was cured and I was not an alcoholic. And then I got another 30 days and then I got two weeks and then I got five days and then I got three days and then I was back to drinking all the time. And um, I went up to a friend's house with my kids in the car and um, she pointed out that I was just not sober and I was still trying to hide it until I just couldn't so she drove me home she went through my house she, intervention basically <laughs> I'm feeling rushed for time so I'm going to pause for a second um, she drove me home she went through the house she pulled out all of the bottles that I had hidden everywhere. She called my kid's dad. He came and got them. She called my parents. And after I woke up, she said, you are going to rehab. And I don't think I've ever been as mad at anybody in my life as I was then. And this is my best friend. So I went to rehab at MPI, which if anyone's been there or anyone's thinking of going, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, but I went there with the same sort of like approach as I did drinking, which was I was going to just do it perfectly. And I did. 
I got there and I was like, I'm going to be sober. Just like when I called that hotline, I'm going to be sober. And I welcomed every newcomer. And I be, I was like, the go talk to Omaya. Like she's got it. And then I drank the day I got out. I don't think I ever imagined that I was going to stop drinking. Um, And then I went to outpatient and I did the same thing. I kept drinking and I lied about it. Um, honestly, I can't say what really shifted except that at a certain point, it was clear that that was just going to keep happening until I started working the steps and last September I started working the steps got a sponsor who was willing to work with me despite like all of that up and down drinking not drinking you know I found someone I was comfortable being really honest with which is huge because the shame part and the denial I think that was keeping me in the grips of drinking. And um, my last drink was December 8th of last year. And um, it was a really, it was the best drink ever. And I'm going to tell you why, because I had, I was like, I don't know, step 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And I thought maybe, just maybe, I could drink again. And it became so clear because I bought this bottle of wine and I was standing at my kitchen counter and um, I opened it and it smelled really good. And I poured a glass. I poured a glass. I took one sip and I was like, that's it. If I drink this, I'm going right back down the hole. And I poured the whole bottle out. And um, what the fuck? Excuse my language. But like, what kind of alcoholic does that? Like pours out a drink right in front of them. And I... I was able to do that because something had my back. Um, and that's, I mean, I, I call it God. It's, that's my high, higher power. Um, and that came from working the steps. And I haven't had a drink since. And that's just pretty amazing to me. And I don't even, like, I don't even think about it anymore. I don't think about drinking. I just, I mean, I drink my fizzy water, I have my coffee, I have my tea, like, just doesn't, just, it's not that I don't want it, I probably want it, but I don't think about it anymore. Um, the other thing that's happened since I, 
have been working with my sponsor and have worked the steps is that um, I have a purpose now that's not just entirely about me. Um, when I was drinking, I mean, I was just so obsessed with drinking, of course, but um, I pick up the phone and I call people. I don't know what to say, but I just call. And um, when people do that, when people call me, um, I'm so grateful and it's so awkward, but it doesn't matter. Like, because eventually, like, as soon as, like, as soon as you say hi, something happens, right? And I just don't have to be in control anymore. I think I'm going to stop there. My dog is barking and it's distracting me. <laughs> um, anyways, I'm really grateful to be here. Um, and thank you for listening. And if I was helpful, I'm so glad. And if I wasn't, stick around because... Hey everybody, I'm Jeff Harder, I'm an alcoholic, sober since September 21st, 2015. Um, it is an honor and privilege to speak. I, I will tell you, um, I was a last minute fill-in for tonight, and when your speaker who was scheduled called me last night to ask me to do this. Sure, no problem. I don't mind, but I'm here in Dallas, Texas, and it's it's two hours later here. So as it got closer to 10 p.m. and I had to get up and get dressed and get off my couch, um, I wasn't so as excited as I was last night when I accepted this opportunity to speak. Um, but here I am, because that's what we do. We suit up and we show up. And um, my home group is here in Dallas. It is called the Chicago Group. And I'll tell you, we um, our name is the Chicago Group because we got our format. It's a 90-minute meeting. For the first 20, 25 minutes, we call people to the podium and they share how Alcoholics Anonymous is working in their life. We have a quick 10-minute coffee break so we can try to greet and talk to any newcomers. And then we have a main speaker for 45 minutes after that. We took that format from a group in Chicago. And so our group is called the Chicago group and the group in Chicago, from what I understand, I took it from a group in California. So the group in California is called the California group, the one in Chicago. So that's how we ended up with our name. Um, anyway, so I haven't spoken on Zoom in a while. Um, everything, most things back here in Dallas are in person. But I will tell you, um, when, I, when COVID hit and we went to Zoom, um, my sponsor is very structured and um, has lots of rules for me. And um, he was watching the camera one night and the modern, he asked me, he goes, why did you um, have your video off? And, and I said, well, I said, I had it on for the first 25 minutes when we were calling members to the podium to share. But when we went to the lead speaker, because I'm a little ADHD and um, I might have minimized my screen and played on another screen and not done what I was supposed to be doing. I said, to help me pay attention, I said, um, 
I listen to it on my phone like I'm listening to a speaker tape or a podcast. And I lay on my bed and close my eyes and listen to the speaker. Um, and I was quickly reminded that these are real AA meetings. They're virtual, but they're real. And when do I get to lay down in an AA meeting? And I was, from that point on, told I had to sit up and leave my camera on. So that was the end of me laying down in meetings. But, but here we are. Um, but I do, I do um, want to tag on that real quick. I do get frustrated sometimes because I heard a lot of people in here introduce themselves with 90 days. And I've heard a lot of old timers say, I'm going to a real meeting. FYI, these are real meetings. This is a real meeting of Alcox Anonymous. AA is not a place. It's a program, a spiritual program of action. We have in-person meetings. We have virtual meetings. This is a real meeting. So don't let anybody tell you it is not. Um, so I have... Um, Till, ooh, I'm already running out of time. Um, so I'll rush through this. Um, I'm going to start way, way back. Um, Y'all don't know. I don't know if any of you have been to Texas, but I'm going to tell you real quick. Um, my mom and my dad, my parents got married when they were um, 18 years old. Um, my mom grew up in a little tiny town in Texas called Taylor, Texas. It was about 50 miles east of Austin. Everybody knows what Austin is. It was outside of Austin. There wasn't anything there. And my grandfather was an alcoholic, and he actually died of this disease. And I, I believe my parents, I don't know for sure, they knew each other for all of a month before they got married. And they both came from really unhappy homes. And I think they both were doing a geographical cure. They found each other to escape their homes and got married and moved to Austin and had me um, shortly after. Um, and I tell this part of the story, not, not to get sympathy, but um, I don't have a whole lot of memories growing up of my dad. He left when I was in third grade, but I have memories of what it felt like when he was around. And um, if you've ever been around anybody where you're nervous, you feel just anxious, you're on pins and needles because you don't want to get them upset, um, that's how it was when he was around. Because if you got him upset, you were going to get thrown into a wall, you were going to get beat, you were going to get whipped. There were times in the house when guns were pulled on people, when he cracked dishes on my mom's head, when he, I saw him whip her, when we had to get in the car and flee and police were called. And... Um, I say all that because I've heard so many speakers at the podium say how they had these amazing lives. Dad was a doctor. Mom is an attorney. They had everything they wanted, yet they were alcoholic. I didn't have any of those things. But what I grew up in did not make me an alcoholic any more than that did. My brother was right there growing up with me in that environment. He had maybe one or two drinks his whole life, didn't like the taste of it. And never picked it up again. Tell you what, I didn't like the taste of it either in the beginning, but I sure liked the way it made me feel. And I got past the taste. Um, so my experience was different. You know, all that other stuff that happened with my dad did not make me an alcoholic. Qualified me for a few other 12-step fellowships, but not this one. But, um, you know, I remember... Um, being in third grade, and I've heard so many speakers, other speakers, I don't know, um, you guys have heard the same story about how a common thread among all of us is how we say we all felt different. We never felt like we had that connection. We didn't feel like we fit in. I, I can identify with that. And I remember back as far as elementary school in third grade, standing in that classroom, looking at the other kids, thinking, what do they get that I don't get? I always felt stupider than they were, fatter than they were, uglier than the other kids. I just felt so different and out of place. 
And I carried those feelings with me for a long time into adulthood. Um, but my dad took off in third grade and my mom is still pretty young at that point. And so I remember, I think I was 12 or 13 and um, she'd have these little parties at our house and get our blender out and start making margaritas. And um, she got in trouble with drinking and partying in school. My mom never finished high school. She dropped out to get married and she didn't want me to follow the same path. So she was trying to normalize the experience of drinking and would let me have one. So I would think it was just okay to have a drink. It wouldn't be something I felt like I needed to sneak off and do. So, um, you know, I never got drunk when she let me have those drinks. But I got that warm, tingly feeling, that easing sense of comfort that comes with that drink. And whenever she'd have those get-togethers, I would be right there in the middle of it, um, offering people to fill up their drinks so I could go in the kitchen and finish off their drink. And I knew from that point forward that there, there had to be more to this than what she was letting me do. And I wanted out of that house to go drink. So I don't know if they do this in California. I think they still do it here in Texas. But because... I already had a part-time job. I had to drive my brother to school. Parents were divorced. I got a hardship driver's license at 15. So I had a car and a driver's license at 15. And I see a lot of young faces in here. So I don't know if there's anybody in here who's going to remember this car, but it was in 19, it was in the 80s. And my very first car was a 1970 Chevrolet Impala. It was gigantic. It was like the Titanic. And the cars then were different. It wasn't like the seats in a car now. It was just like a sofa in the front and a sofa in the back. And it was a big four-door car. And we could put four kids in the front and four kids in the back. And I was really popular because I was like the only kid in high school as a sophomore who had my own car and a driver's license. And the drinking age was 18 then. So we I had a fake ID and we'd go to these little beer barn drive through places and pop the trunk and show the fake ID and just load it up with cases and cases and cases of beer and go to someone's house or go to some field in the country and just get drunk. And I never drank for the taste of it. I hated beer. I still hate beer, but I drank it for the effect and I drank until I blacked out. But I will tell you, I didn't know what a blackout was until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. Someone asked me if I was a blackout drinker, and I said no. And then it, they told me what a blackout drinker was, that you don't remember parts of the night. And I said, well, yes, that's every time I drink. I thought that's the experience everybody had. I didn't know that was a blackout. Um, that was every time I drank. So um, I never in high school became a uh, was not a big binge drinker I was a party drinker on the weekends but it started increasing and um I was big and banned uh, the only consequence I had in high school for my drinking really was you know my mom would get mad at me when I'd come home drunk um, I got pulled over a few times but it was a different time than the officers would just say get home safe young man or they would actually follow me home there were no big consequences um I was um all-state band when I was really young. I thought I was going to go off to big, big music major. And by my junior year, drinking um, had become a bigger priority. And I didn't have time to get up and go to marching band and sit in the bleachers at football games. I wanted to sneak the booze in and go to the football games and go to the after parties. So I dropped out, always planning to get back into that. And, and I never did. But um I would go to those parties after the football games with all the kids, all the cool kids, and all those feelings that I had 
when I was in third grade of feeling so different, alcohol took all that away. All of a sudden I was taller and thinner and funnier. And I really felt like alcohol at that time helped me um, participate in life. I didn't feel like an observer anymore. I was there and I loved every minute of it. And then when I got off to college, I went to college in San Marcos, Texas, and um, it was off to the races. If you've ever lived in a college town, a small college town like that, um, there's always an excuse to be at a bar every single night. You know, one night it's 50 cent shots here, dollar pitchers of beer here, um, you know, $2 margaritas over here. There was always a reason to be out. And I, and I thought then that I wasn't drinking alcoholically. I never thought about it at all. I just thought I'm drinking like everybody else does in college. But everybody in college wasn't drinking like I was because they were graduating and getting careers and families. And I was still there spinning my wills. Um, and I, and I, have you ever told the lie so many times about yourself that you actually believe your own nonsense? You actually start believing your own lie? I told people it took me six years to finally muster up enough credits to get my bachelor's degree. And I told people, you know, guys, it just took me longer because I had to pay my own way and I had to work full time. So it just took me a little longer. Yet that part of the story is true. But the part I leave out is I was waiting tables at night and um, we'd start drinking at the restaurant and we close the restaurant and then we go to a club and drink till they threw us out of there. And then we go to someone's house and keep partying until the sun was coming up. And it's real hard to make it to those eight o'clock classes when you're still drunk. So I ended up paying all these money for these classes and I didn't want to get the failing grade. So I would withdraw. So I'm paying for the classes, but not getting any credits and just spinning my wheels year after year after year. And, um, I would go to work. That restaurant was great. This was before everything was computerized. You know, I went to college back before we had, there was no cell phones or internet back then. Um, it was like Walton's Mountain for you young people. It was a long, long time ago. And um, so we hand wrote everything on these tickets and turned it into the bar. So we get these big parties that would come in, parties of 10, 15 people at a table and everybody's drinking. Nobody at the table knows what the other person is drinking. So all the waiters, we would add a few drinks to their ticket and turn it in. So the bartenders would make us the drinks. We'd go drink them in the kitchen and then we'd turn the ticket back to the table. So the people we're waiting on were actually paying us for our drinks and tipping us on our drinks that we were stealing from them. We had it all figured out. But, um, Another thing that I remember, and this was my whole life until I found this program, um, I was always going to be happy when I got somewhere else. I was always going, things were always going to be better. I remember middle school, I was always going to be happy when I got to high school. I'm going to be happy when I get a car. I'll be happy in college. I'll be happy when I graduate. But every time I got there, you know, there I still was. And I still had that spiritual malady that the book talks about. I'm distracted. I'm co-host. I just admitted someone to the meeting. Um, and, it, and it ever was that place. I'd always get somewhere and I still wasn't fixed. But I graduate college and I was a school teacher back then. And I thought, you know what? Um, I had the career I wanted. I should be happy, but I'm not. I'm still not happy. 
And I, and I should have got fired as a school teacher. At one point, I was teaching high school math. How much time do I have? Let me check my clock. I was teaching high school math. And um, do y'all remember anybody who's of my age where they had those old um, TV strapped to those big metal carts and they'd wheel them into the classroom and show a video? I'm teaching math and I'd roll into class hungover, still wearing my stinky bar clothes from the night before. And in my math class, I'd show some National Geographic animals of Africa and nap at my desk in my math class. So the kids loved it when Mr. Harger was hungover, but um, they weren't learning much about math. And I somehow got away with that. I guess I owe some of those students an amends, but that, that hasn't happened yet. But again, I was always going to be happy when I got somewhere else. And so now I don't know what's wrong. I, I'm miserable and I decide what I need is a relationship. That, that's going to fix everything. No one's ever done that. And so um, I go looking for relationship in the bars. I'm going to find love at the bar. And of course, I find another alcoholic to date. And um, he drank way worse than I did and did drugs at a level that I had never seen before. And it was fun at first. But... Um, and it also helped me at that time not have to look at myself. Like I said, in college, I didn't think I had a problem because I was just doing what everybody in college did. And now this is all his fault. And I ended up moving to Dallas with this guy and um, things are getting worse. I'm drinking more and more and more and, it's, and, I, and I'm blaming everything on him. So after, I guess, five years, we end that. And I think, you know what? Things are going to calm down now that I get rid of him. And of course, things didn't change. Things got worse. I, I, I found more of my people to drink with, more drinking buddies. And again, I never had to look at myself, but, um, and I'm starting to go to some doctors cause I'm depressed. I have anxiety. I don't know why. And they'd give me medications. And then I go to another doctor. One doctor I went to said, you know, we need to get you off of some of this stuff. You're on how much stuff. And when he, when he actually considered pulling me off something, I walked right out of there. No, we're not taking anything away. You can add to the mix, but you're not taking anything away from this mix. I don't know what I do. But I remember having um, actual conversations with my drinking friends. I'm starting to realize maybe I have a problem here. And I asked my drinking buddies if I had a drinking problem. They assured me I didn't. So everything was good. And um, but I start trying to the book talks about controlled drinking. Um, I start trying to manage my drinking by switching to only beer because I hate beer. So I thought um, that'll slow me down. And it did slow me down for a minute. But once I get to that point that we all want to get to, then I'd switch back over to what I really liked. Um, my other plan was um, day drinking. It was going out to the bars and staying out all night. That was the problem. So I would organize these big brunches with friends and, um, that didn't help. All I did was start earlier. And, you know, I'd go home about four or five o'clock to change clothes and feed the dog and then go back out and just keep going. I was always going to go home after dinner. I was always going to go have one drink, but I never could stop. I didn't know that I was powerless over that, that, you know, that phenomenon of craving kicks in and we can't turn it off. I didn't know I'd lost the power of choice and all that. 
But I also didn't know that there were people who weren't not like that. I thought everybody else just had more self-control. I didn't know there were people out there that could feel that buzz that once we hit, it sets us off. But when they feel it, they're like, ooh, I feel it. I need to stop. But I never said that once. The sun was always coming up, and I was always regretting life the next day. Um, I did go to some drug abuse counselors and things like that. And some of them would recommend Alcoholics Anonymous to me and I would ignore them. I thought this was a great little fellowship. I, I, I didn't say fellowship then. I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. I called it a little self-help group. I said, that's a great self-help group for those people, but I'm different. This won't work for me. So, you know, I tried other things, you know, reading self-help books, you know, doing exercise. I tried all the things the book describes that we do. None of them worked. Um, and I just wanted to stop. I was so dead inside. Alcohol had no longer, it was no longer fun. I remember it used to be something fun and social, and that was something I didn't know how not to do. I was never a daily drinker. But the days in between the drinks became more and more unbearable. I didn't know how to function without them. And um, at one point, I'm going to talk briefly and not try to go off track. But um, I did go to the doctor one time. I had a herniated disc in my back. And my doctor gave me some medicine for the pain. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. And I realized this is the ticket right here. I'm going to use this to get me between Tuesday and Thursday. You know, I was only really a weekend drinker, but the weekend started on Thursday now and ended on Mondays. And, um, and um, that was going to help me get between the drinks. But that ended up not being enough. And a coworker also one time gave me some medicine that they give kids to help them pay attention in school. I kind of like that too. So I went and got myself fake diagnosed with ADHD. I wasn't going to do AA because I didn't believe in this. But now at this point, I'm running around to doctors with a fake diagnosis of ADHD. And I had a plan. I had it all figured out. I was going to take this medicine for ADHD until I taper off this other medicine for my back. And then when I get off that medicine, then I'll stop taking this ADHD medicine and then I'll stop drinking and then life will be good. I had it all figured out. I will tell you at that time, I spent more work managing all of that than I've ever done doing any step work in this program. And um, that wasn't working. And, and I remember times I would just stand in my kitchen, just so dead inside. And, and I would look at the bottle and just say, don't do this today. Jeff, don't do it. And then that alcoholic thinking would click in and say, it's okay. Go ahead and have your drink today. You can stop tomorrow. We'll worry about this tomorrow. Go ahead and take the drink today. And I did every time. And I was always going to stop on Monday or after my birthday or after Christmas. And it was just year after year upon that merry-go-round that I did not know how to get off of. So I finally decided I'm going to go give AA a try after spending many, many hours online um, doing Google searches about alcoholism and doing those self quizzes. I don't know. Have any of you done those quizzes online if you're an alcoholic? Um, answered all those questions. Just so you know, people who are not alcoholic are not online taking those quizzes at all. So if you take that quiz, you're probably an alcoholic if you can go to that site because people are not having drink problems. They're not thinking about it. They're not taking that test. 
So um, <clears throat> I remember going into um, a meeting on a Monday at noon, raised my hand. I was new and I got my little desire chip and I got asked out on a date on my first meeting, which being new in AA, I thought that was really cool. Now I know how sick that is that somebody asked me out picking up a desire chip, but I thought it was cool. I'm like, this is awesome. And I actually uh, dated this guy for a while and I'd went to their, I went to their meetings a lot. I never once got a sponsor, never got a book, never paid attention to anything at the meetings, but I hung out with them for about three or four months and I stayed sober on the fellowship. I tried to manage my crazy and keep it in check in front of them for a while, but eventually it all blew up. And um, I was at the bar the next night doing a shot of tequila. And I just remember when that tequila went down, I was like, oh, my God, what was I doing over there all that time, wasting my time with those losers? All they did was talk about when they used to be fun. And I was back and I was so excited. But a week after that, um, we don't have a subway here. We've got an above ground train system, the dart train. And um, <clears throat> Within a week of being back out, um, I was blackout drunk and drove my car up onto those train tracks and was stuck up on there. And um, I will tell you, when I came out of that blackout, my first thoughts were not, did um, I kill someone on the way here? Did I hurt someone? Or I could be killed, the train could be coming any second, or what damage due to my car? All I thought about was, how do I get off of these tracks? I'm not finished drinking for the night. So the tracks, I don't know if you can see on the screen, when I was drunk, I thought those tracks were pretty small. Those tracks were pretty deep when I saw them sober a few days later. But in my mind, in my blackout drunk mind, I thought, I just need some traction to get over these tracks. I didn't know. I never noticed that all four tires were flat and busted. And so I'm pulling my floor mats out of the car and I'm pushing those floor mats under the tires to get me some traction over this gravel. And then I had an SUV with the rear windshield wiper. So I slip and lose my balance and grab the wiper. It slipped my hand. So there's blood everywhere all over me. I'm pushing the floor mats when the cops show up. And um, I didn't get a DUI. Somehow I got out of that. It was when the Super Bowl was in Dallas that year, that weekend. I think the cops were really busy and didn't have time to mess with the paperwork. So I got hauled into court. I mean, called into jail, spent the night in the drunk tank and got a public intox ticket. And all that got dismissed. And it, that, that, that scared me a little bit. And I was like, I was so grateful. I'm like, yes, that saved me. That really woke me up. That shook me up. No, it didn't. It slowed me down. Just like, you know, how like on Thanksgiving when you're really full and you're going to go on a diet, but then a few days later, you're not so full and you really, you overreacted to the whole thing. Um, th th that's how I was. And I was back to drinking in no time. And I wish I could tell you that there was some big, amazing bottom story, some tragic story that finally brought me here, but there wasn't. The only thing that brought me in here was I was completely dead inside. I was just going through the motions of life. There was nothing that brought me any joy anymore. There was nothing to look forward to. All the things, just the little things that used to make me happy were not there anymore. And um, I remember one time actually thinking to myself, how much money do you need to make <clears throat> to keep living like this until you die? Or do you really want to go give Alcox Anonymous a try? That those were my options. 
And so I went into another noon meeting and I sat down at a different group. Let me check my clock. And I sat down at that group and um, they were so nice. They ran and gave me a book and um, a phone list of all their members and another desired ship and some pamphlets. And they made it, I, I think, a step one meeting. You know, I don't know what they talked about. They could have read Green Eggs and Ham to me. I really wasn't paying attention. I was just sitting in the room. And I just wanted, everybody looked at me when they shared, and it made me real uncomfortable. So after the meeting, you know, I walked right out the front door, and there was a trash can outside the building. And I threw all that stuff in the trash. I'm like, nope, not for me. And I left. And I suffered for just one more week. And I went back in there the next Monday. And I went back in on Tuesday. And I went back on Wednesday. And um, this group, when I originally got sober, they did a lot of meetings. I don't know if y'all have those there where they just read the daily reflection. Then they went around the table and shared on it. I, I remember this very clearly. It was on how expectations can cause resentments. Now, with three-day sobriety, I did, that didn't make any sense to me. I wanted you to tell me how to stop drinking. I didn't understand what the steps meant. I didn't understand the stuff about resentments and expectations, none of it. So when they come around to my side of the table, I'm a little irritable. I've been hanging on, white-knuckling it for a few days. And they said, Jeff, would you like to share? I said, I, I really do. I think I have some stuff you guys need to hear with my three days of sobriety. And, um, and I said, I have, have some expectations. And my sponsor now doesn't allow me to cuss in AA meetings or at the podium. But I was cussing that day at that table. And I was like, I have some effing expectations that somebody in this effing room will help me, will tell me how these steps work. And the speaker was this nice man, the chair, and he just, his eyes got real big and I was scaring him. And he's like, stop talking, stop talking. Somebody will get with you after the meeting. And um, after the meeting, a guy gets up and runs around the table and he goes, is anybody working with you yet? And I was like, did that sound like anybody is working with me yet? And so um, he said, you're going to meet me tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., bring your book. And we met at this coffee shop. Oh, my God, I felt so relieved that somebody was going to help me. And um, we sat down and all he did was fill me out, tell me about himself that first day. I told him about my story and I, and I was brought my spiral notebook. I was ready to write down all the instructions to stay sober and we're getting ready to leave. And I said, what do I do? What, what, tell me what to do. And he said, well, I want you to do this prayer. I'm like, a prayer? I was like, that's all you got? A prayer? And um, are, are, do y'all know the set aside prayer? Do y'all say that out there? nobody's nobody's not in their head okay one per day i got a, i got a head no um i'll read it to you that's what he had me say um and the prayer goes um god please help me set aside everything i think i know about myself my disease the steps in you and open my mind to a new experience with myself my disease the steps and especially you well at this time i didn't believe in god I, that's another reason that I stayed out of AA. And I told him that I said, I don't believe in God. And he goes, I didn't ask you if you believed in God. I need you to do this prayer every day. That banter went back and forth for about four or five minutes before I just gave in and wrote the prayer down. And I did it. I did it every day. I did it hard because the days were pretty painful. And when you get sober, who knows? Who knew the days were so long? There was like so much time and I didn't know what to do with it all. There was one group in Dallas that has like meetings, one of those big meeting houses, they have a 7 a.m., a 10 a.m., a noon. And so on Saturdays, I'd go to that group and I'd go to like all the meetings. 
the whole day. And I would just sit in the room and be sad in between the meetings. And, um, but it got me through the beginning and um, I'm running out of time. I didn't get to talk about it as much about being sober as I wanted to, but I will tell you, um, I continue to meet the sponsor. We met once, twice a week. We didn't do any worksheets or any PDFs or anything. We read the book. We did the step as it was presented and outlined in the book. It was pretty straightforward, but I want to talk about when we got to step three, and step two and the whole God thing. And I told you, I didn't believe in God. And um, I'm real grateful that my sponsor did not force me to have some big conception of a higher power at that time. All he asked me was, how can you definitely say there is no God? Can you 100% say there's not? And I couldn't. And, and I know that for myself, when I look like at the vastness of the universe and, and just the mountains like in Colorado and nature, it just makes no sense that there's not some purpose to it all. And so just that little tiny crack in the door was enough for me to continue on the steps and make that connection to that higher power that gradually did come later in the program, but it wasn't there initially. But I did continue to pray daily, and it felt so uncomfortable for me in the beginning. Just kind of my stomach went in knots like it was so foreign to me. But a few months into the program, all of a sudden, it felt like I wasn't talking to the wall anymore, like something was different. And about four months into the program, I remember all those years I had struggled trying to get sober, trying to manage it, me trying to figure it out on my own that never worked. Now that I had actually surrendered this program and exhausted all of my option and the options and were following sponsor direction, that, that obsession to drink or do anything else was removed really quick. And I remember in the beginning, I woke up every day and didn't think about drinking, but I thought about not drinking. I'm not going to drink today. Not going to drink today. I thought about not drinking a lot. And I realized about four months in, I'm not even thinking about not drinking. It's just, it's not an issue. And it, that has never come back. That has never come back. And for me, I know that I'm not saying I could not relapse. I definitely could. Anybody could. But for me, what would take me back out is um, some of those character defects, those resentments when I start judging people and isolating myself. Because when I do that, I separate myself from you guys, from my home group and from God. And eventually, eventually, those resentments would lead to a drink. Um, hasn't happened so far. I will share you. I'm going to get close to we got. I'm going to just wrap it up. During COVID time, you're still in COVID time, but initially... Um, I, like I said, one of my character defects that I have to pray for a lot is judgment. And I will tell you, everybody in my home group didn't handle COVID the way I thought they should have. And there were some people, we were on Zoom, and there were some people that started having groups at their house, and they dragged the podium over there to their house. And I was mad because, you know, they weren't following the rules. And um, But the difference, the way that the thing that this program has taught me was, no one cares about my feelings. They care about what I'm doing. And that judgment that I had for those people who were doing that, were, that was only going to kill me, not them. And so some of those people were my friends. And the old me would have cut those people out of my life. You weren't acting the way I thought they should. 
but the new me continued to reach out to them and make those calls. And I didn't pick up my toys and change home group and go play in a different sandbox. I stayed right there. And now they're all back in person. It just all seems like water under the bridge. But that resentment, you know, it could have killed me. But now I still have those friends. And this program has taught me a different way to live. Um, I sponsor men. I have a sponsor. I have grand sponsees. I have service commitments. Um, there are times in this program where I am so gung-ho, and there are other times where it feels like I'm just checking a box, like I'm just going through the motions. But I will tell you real quick, keep going through those motions because it comes and it goes. And I've shared this with my sponsees. This is a cheesy analogy, but, you know, when you don't want to go to the gym and you just do a, you know, a half part, you know, a week workout, Go do it. You know, it's better than no workout at all. So keep doing it. Don't stop. It just get up, do your program, just like brushing your teeth. You just do it every day, whether you want to or not. And I'm going to read one thing and I'm going to shut up. It's one of my favorite passages from the book. And um, it just says, <clears throat> it's from We Agnostics. When we saw others solve their problems by a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe, we had to stop doubting the power of God. Our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. I love that so much because my ideas, my plans, and I start trying to figure stuff out, they never work. But as long as I continue to trust God and follow what he wants me to do, uh, I never have to live like I used to again. So thanks for letting me share, guys.